Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may now be seated. Well, good morning again. As you heard read, we are going to be in Matthew. We've spent our Advent in chapters 1 and 2. In our next series, we're skipping forward a few chapters to chapters 5 through 7. And some of you are you're used to us not skipping chapters. I want to let you know, I will come back later, probably next January, February, and we'll fill in the gaps here. But I wanted to skip forward to the most famous sermon that has ever been preached. And I'm certainly not talking about my sermon this morning. I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And I picked this, I chose to do this really for two reasons. One, because it fits so nicely between here and Easter. And then two, because it so appropriately speaks to the church in a day and age when our culture is changing very fast. So how is it that we are to to act as a church in the midst of a culture that's changing quicker, surely, than our parents or grandparents could have ever imagined. And so when we come to Matthew, there are a few things that would be helpful to see. If you see verses 423 and 935, all right, Matthew gives us uh, two verses that are almost identical, and Matthew almost surely means for these, these verses to be bookends of sorts, to say, hey, this is one chunk of my book that I want to be taken as one chunk. And those almost identical verses basically say this. And Jesus went all around Galilee doing two things, teaching and healing. And so chapters five, six, and seven are the teaching and chapters eight and nine are the healing. So when Matthew's thinking, I I need the best example that I can think of of Jesus's preaching all through Galilee, he chose the Sermon on the Mount. And so what is it that the Sermon on the Mount is teaching us? Jesus in his sermon is talking about the two kingdoms. You have the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. They are two very different kingdoms with two very different economies, all right? And I'm not saying one's communist and the other's capitalist. That's not what I mean by economy. I mean, they're two kingdoms with two very different sets of values. Things that are very valued in the kingdom of man might not be valued at all in the kingdom of God. Things that are of little value in the kingdom of man might be of great value in the kingdom of God. 
And so we'll be spending every Sunday, Lord willing, between now and the Sunday before Easter, looking at how the two kingdoms are different. But this morning, we get to dive in to a a very famous passage called the Beatitudes. So if you grew up in church, you've heard the term Beatitude. As a new Christian, I can remember thinking the the Beatitudes were the attitudes that I really need to be. And while that wouldn't be terribly far off, that's not what beatitude means. The beatitudes, beatitude means blessed. It means blessing. So some of your older translations might say happy. Happy are those who, instead of blessed are those who. And I really don't think that's a bad translation. The problem is that our language has evolved. So now when we use the word happy, it doesn't doesn't carry the weight that I think Jesus intended it to carry. So blessed, we see this word blessed all over the Bible. You certainly, some famous places we would see this word is Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Perhaps even more well-known, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then you have Deuteronomy 28 that has a litany of blessings and curses that's teaching the Israelites how it is that they are to live in this covenant relationship with their God. But you can know all that and still wonder what exactly does it mean to be blessed? (laughs) Well, I, I hear I'm blessed if I do all these things, but what does it mean to be blessed? Does it mean that my finances are are gonna get better? Does it mean that my health is going to improve? Does it mean that my family's gonna become more healthy? What does it mean to be blessed? I think being blessed, certainly, certainly all those things are under the umbrella of blessing. But if we limited the blessing to just these kinds of me-centered things, these material things, these temporal things, I think we would really miss the mark on what it is that Jesus is wanting to communicate to us in these Beatitudes. To be blessed, it has to do with how God views us. That's what blessed means. How does God view us? So one commentator said that we could translate blessed as way to go, way to go, you who fill in the blank. One pastor said we could translate it as congratulations. Congratulations to all of you who are able to. It has to do with how God views us. And in the Beatitudes, we have eight blessings between verses three and 10. And some of you might be looking, well, verse 11 looks a lot like a blessing. I think verse 11 is elaborating on verse 10. So that's why I think there, there are eight blessings, eight beatitudes, not nine. And I am going to follow in the footsteps of many scholars, including John Stott, who would look at these eight blessings and divide them up into two different categories. You have the first four beatitudes that are articulating how we relate in the kingdom of God vertically with God. And then you have the second set of four that articulate how you relate in the kingdom of God with other people horizontally. So those are two of my three points. How we relate with, with, vertically with God in the kingdom of God, how we relate horizontally with others in the kingdom of God. And then finally, what exactly are the promises that these blessings will bring us? That's what we're gonna do this morning. So first, how do we relate to God in this new kingdom? Verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now in Mark's account of of these sermons, he just says, blessed are the poor. 
Okay, so this has given rise to whole theological systems that would say money is inherently evil. Only the people who don't have these material possessions are the ones who are blessed. And I think contextually, linguistically, you can't make that argument. Jesus is definitely saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, not materially. But then we have to answer another question. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because some people have said it means to be poor spirited. That's what what he's saying. You know, when I think of poor spirited, I think of Eeyore. Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, just someone going around and nothing's ever right. There's no drive in their life. They can't be content. Blessed are those people. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. It's not poor spirited, it's poor in spirit. And so poor in spirit would be the opposite of rich in pride. Somebody who is rich in pride thinks, I know what I need to do with my life. If there is a God, I know better than him. And if anything, he might owe me for my pain and my suffering on this earth. Someone who's rich in pride would say fundamentally, the problem with this world are other people and maybe even God, not knowing that the problem with the world is our own hearts. So some years ago, I read an interview with then New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, and the journalist was asking him his thoughts on heaven and how you got in. And his reply, I quote, I'm telling you that if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm headed straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. That's rich in pride. And I don't just want to pick on the non-religious Democrats here, okay? I think there are plenty in the religious right that would be rich in pride as well. So I think many of the Pharisees of Jesus's time would have fit very comfortably in our current religious right. And you probably remember the story in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. You want to hear rich in, rich in pride. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, if you want to see poor in spirit, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We see in Revelation, the church in Laodicea became rich in pride. And what does Jesus say to them? For for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So the person who is poor in spirit is someone who realizes that she is spiritually bankrupt is someone who realizes that he has more in common with the prodigal son coming home with absolutely nothing to offer. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Completely bankrupt spiritually in every way. There's a recovery ministry that I follow on social media that I think does a a really good job of what they do. And last week they, they posted this. It said, New Year's resolution. Realize that I am not God. And I so appreciated it because they obviously deal with issues in the realm of addiction. And they realize that addiction is not primarily a physical issue. And and all, from what I understand, all psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, scientists are realizing that addiction is not merely a physical issue. 
but we would say it's a spiritual and relational issue as well. Because as people, we have unattainable goals, we have unrealized hopes, we have irretrievable losses, we have unsustainable finances, and on top of that, we're disconnected from any, increasingly disconnected from any meaningful relationships as, our, as we progress into the 21st century. And so because of all of that, we internalize it and we look for ways to forget. <laughs> That's what leads to addiction. But this verse is telling us our hope isn't to try and forget our problems. Our hope is to see our problems clearly and embrace them. Understanding, admitting that we're not God and we are spiritually bankrupt. That's the first way that we're supposed to relate with God. Secondly, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, again, all of these have been misconstrued in certain ways. Some people have said, well, those who cry are the ones who go to heaven. Well, the problem with that is all of us cry, yet Jesus was really clear. There are gonna be people, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So it can't be all those who are sad or hurting that, that get this comfort. All, all the commentators, all the scholars agree that what Jesus is saying, again, in kind of the same light as poor in spirit, it's those who mourn their sin. Those are the people who are gonna be comforted. Those who mourn, yes, to some measure, the sin in the world, but specifically those who mourn our own sin, the ways that we contribute to the mess of our lives and the mess of our communities. Those people are the ones who will get comfort. There, there's a really famous story. Um, it's got, I think it's over 100 years now that this is, since this happened. But the London Times posted a question in their newspaper that said, asked very simply, what is the problem with this world? And they had all these people respond, very long, complex, articulate, well thought out solutions or answers to what is wrong with the world. And then a man named G.K. Chesterton famously responded very simply and said, dear sir, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's a man who understands what it is to mourn our sin. Thirdly, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All right, so I come to meek, and I'm like, this one's not fun. <laughs> I don't like meek. I know God's kingdom is different than my kingdom. But the problem with, with the way I'm hearing this is I'm, I'm looking at meek, and I'm hearing weak. You know, blessed are the weak. It's not saying blessed are the powerless. It's saying blessed are those who can, who can keep their power under control. That's what this is saying. So some people would look at this and say, well, Jim, that sounds a lot more like a, a horizontal issue. You know, blessed are you who can keep your power under control rather than a vertical issue. But I, I would argue that this issue of meekness has more to do with our vertical relationship than it does our horizontal relationships. And I'll explain it like this. So imagine that I come to you and I tell you, yes, I'm somebody, I admit I'm poor in spirit. I know I'm sinful. I'm mourning over that sin. And then somebody comes up to me and calls me a shady punk and I punch him in the face. Would there seem to be some incongruency there between what I'm saying and what I'm doing? Yes. Because if I deeply believe that I am spiritually bankrupt and I mourn over my sin. When someone comes in and calls me a sinner, all I can say is you're right. And it won't elicit a very angry response. So I, 
I have lots of faults, but I feel like one of my strengths <laughs> is that I, I've got a long fuse when it comes to anger. But nothing will make my fuse burn faster than bickering in my house. And, or hypothetically, bickering on an 11-hour car trip from Mississippi to Orlando last week. <laughs> You're copying me. He's looking at me. And my favorite is, she's pushing my buttons. All right? Meekness is having control over your buttons. And meekness only comes from bowing low before God and counting others more significant than yourself. And then lastly, as it pertains to this vertical relationship that we have with God in the kingdom, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. So up until now, we've only talked about what we are. We are poor in spirit. We are sinful. We are meek. But finally now we get to what we aren't, what we lack. And, and what we lack, Jesus is very clearly saying is righteousness. And notice how he doesn't say blessed are those who are righteous. All right. He says blessed are those who hunger for it and thirst for it. And he uses two of the deepest cravings that humans have. Two, two cravings that are very good. Two cravings that, that keep us alive. So Jesus is saying in the same way that we thirst for water and hunger for food, we should long for righteousness to replace our sin. So when I look at this, I, I can't help but wonder, what, what do I thirst after? What would people who are close to me say, Jim really hungers after this? Jim really thirsts after this? What are the things that you, the people around you would say, you really thirst for this? Because the thing that we most thirst for is the thing that ultimately we think is going to satisfy us. But Jesus is saying, none of it will. The only people who will be satisfied are those who thirst for righteousness. And this is the place that Christianity departs from every other worldview that has ever existed on the history of the earth. So I was listening to Ben Shapiro a few weeks ago and he cited the Sermon on the Mount as the reason he believes really all, all worldviews lead to the same God. You know, it's the same, kind of, the same kind of teaching, love, lift others up, all the religions say the same thing, so Christianity is really not that different. Well, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I don't think we're reading the same sermon because Jesus is doing something very different than every other worldview. Every other worldview will tell you these are the things you need to do to attain righteousness yourself. Buddha had his philosophies. Islam had the five pillars. Modern secularism has do more good than bad, whatever that is. And my goodness, every Disney movie I've ever seen, do these things and you'll be happy. Do these things and you'll be righteous. But the problem is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying really clearly, there's nothing you can do. The bar is too high. You are too far gone. And if at this moment, any of you are thinking, man, it seems really hard to get into the kingdom then you're grasping Christianity. Because what Christianity is saying is there is a wall that exists between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, and that wall is unrighteousness. All those who are unrighteous are on the outside looking in. What we require to go into the kingdom of a perfect and holy God is righteousness. So how do we get that righteousness? Not by the five pillars, not by the philosophies of Buddha, and certainly not from the wisdom of any Disney movie. Jesus, who is preaching this sermon, 
who's the epitome of poor in spirit, who has mourned over sin more than any of us ever will. Jesus, who was the meekest among us, leaving heaven, coming to earth, going to the cross to die for a crime he didn't commit. And not only a crime he didn't commit, he had never committed a crime. He was sinless. And so Jesus went to the cross to take on the penalty for all of our rebellion. And in what is called that blessed transaction, as he takes on the wrath of God for our sin, he gives us his righteousness. That's how we get righteous. That's how we get into the, into the kingdom of God. So righteousness isn't something earned. It's something that we get, but we will never get it until we long for it. And that blessed transaction, that righteousness given to us, that is the ticket into the kingdom of God. Water is our answer for thirst. Food is our answer for hunger. And Jesus is our answer for unrighteousness. He is the living water. He is the bread of eternal life. And it isn't until we understand how we are to relate vertically to God that we are able to enter into the kingdom of God. And when we do, then the next set of four Beatitudes becomes very pertinent to us. Because then we have instructions on how it is that we're to relate to each other. Second point. How we relate to man in the new kingdom. First, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And again, so many of these have been misunderstood. Because it sounds like, if you just want to take this verse by itself, that Jesus is saying, for those who extend mercy throughout the course of their life, to those I will extend mercy and let you into the kingdom of God. Well, we know that can't be it because Jesus has just said righteousness that comes by grace alone through me. That's how you get in. So what is it that Jesus is saying here? He's saying something about the nature of the kingdom. When we come into the kingdom, acknowledging that it is only by great mercy that we are there in the first place, we then have this greater capacity and this greater desire to offer that same type of mercy to other people. And that is expected of those in the kingdom of God. If we've received mercy, we should give it. That's why just 13 chapters later, Jesus gives the parable of the the king and the servant who owes him a great deal of money for his debt. And Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And he tells a story about the king forgiving this massive debt of his servant. But then he finds out his servant is going out and his servant has other people who owe him much smaller amounts of money and he's demanding that debt. He'd been forgiven his big debt, but he's going out and demanding that smaller debts are paid to him. Listen to what Jesus says about him. The king calls him back and says, and should you not have and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to, to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the expectation is for those who are in the kingdom who have received this expansive mercy that we would generously be giving that same type of mercy to those around us. So what is mercy? You know, we, mercy is different than grace. It's similar to grace in that we get it undeservingly. But when we think of mercy, I think we need to think in terms of having compassion for people in need. And, and I'm, I'm not saying 
that we need to be simply helping those in need. There's a big difference because I have known a lot of people who have spent hours in food pantries and homeless shelters and tutoring underprivileged children and they're serving the poor but not out of mercy because it's not coming from a place of compassion. They're not marked by compassion, they're marked by self-righteousness. They're serving the poor to feel better about themselves. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about serving others in need because we have been served. There's a whole different motivation there. So we show mercy to others. And then secondly, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. For me, this is is the one that sounds so lofty, you know, and so unreachable. It kind of just wants to shut me down. Blessed are the pure of heart. You know, I know what goes on in my heart on a daily basis. So it surely couldn't be talking about me. Well, Jesus isn't saying blessed are the perfect. That's not what he's saying. He's blessed are the pure of heart, which in essence mean blessed are those who have an undivided loyalty. That's what Jesus is talking about. So let me state it like this. C.S. Lewis says that Christianity does not exist to make people nicer. It exists to make people new. Tim, uh, Tim Keller said Christianity doesn't exist for reformation, it exists for transformation. God isn't just trying to spruce up people so that they can look better in his kingdom. He's out to make a whole new model. He's not trying to make the faster caterpillar. He's trying to make a butterfly. There's a massive change that goes in on our heart when we believe because when we we believe, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and the main ministry of the Holy Spirit is to put a spotlight on Jesus. You know, we're still gonna sin, we're still gonna stumble, but at the deepest core of who we are, we long for Jesus more than anything else. So it would be easy to think, all right, Jim, this is, again, this is sounding like more of a, of a vertical thing than a horizontal thing. Well, it's not, and let me show you why. So Christianity at its core is a group of people who have admitted and let go of their idols and replaced it with Jesus. So the thing that was most important is pulled down and Jesus is now most important. Not perfectly, but Jesus is clearly the most important thing in our life. And so imagine if your idol was vocational success. All right, so if that's the main thing that you care about, you're gonna sacrifice for that thing. You know, you're, gonna, you're going to be okay not being with your family on the weekends. You're gonna be okay with late nights. You're gonna be okay maybe telling a white lie here and there to get ahead in, in, your, in your company, in your business. You're going to be okay when others get the blame certainly for what they did, but maybe even for what you did, you know? And you're gonna really desire to get all the credit for what you did and, and maybe even the credit of some other people in the workplace too, because at the end of the day, what you care about is your vocational success because that's what's most important to you. That's your idol. But the pure of heart, by the grace of God, Jesus is now most important. And so when that person enters the workplace, that person understanding they are a part of a new kingdom, they come in with a different set of values. Jesus is most important, so they come in and they're okay if other people get the credit that they deserve and maybe even the credit they don't deserve. They're okay taking the blame for what we deserve and maybe even okay taking the blame for what we don't deserve. It's a whole new way to think about interacting with everyone around us and we can apply it in every facet of our social dynamics in our life. Christian is profoundly changed 
when he realizes this new call to live out a life in the kingdom with a purity of heart. And, and I think if I can slow down here just for a second, I think that this is where so many Christians are robbed of the joy of living in the kingdom. Because we can focus so much on the entry point, the ticket, the forgiveness of sins, which is a huge part of our faith, but that gets us into the kingdom. And then we get to live out of a purity of heart that brings us great blessing and great joy. So the way I'm thinking about it, I have a boy over here who loves airplanes. He loves everything about airplanes. He knows more airlines than I think any of you in this room, outside of maybe a pilot that I'm aware of. He, he, we have an app and we can, we can look at the planes going overhead and we know, you know where they're coming from, what type of plane it is. He knows all the different types of planes. His great hope is to see an Airbus 380 someday. But all of that pales in comparison to riding on an airplane. And so it would, it would be off if we went to the airport to go on a plane flight and we get to the check-in desk. And he was more excited about the check-in desk than the plane ride. And so our righteousness that we get and our forgiveness of sins, that's how we get into the kingdom. But we can forget that now we get to experience kingdom life. Now we get to experience all the blessings, all the pleasure of living out of this new purity of heart given us by the Holy Spirit. Mercy upon mercy lavished upon us because none of us deserve it. Blessed are those who live out of pureness of heart. Thirdly, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Part of me just wanted to say, read Kurt's book, moving on. He read a great book on peacemaking. But it makes sense that the kingdom of God, those of us who are in the kingdom of God, we are called sons of God, all right? Women, we have to deal with being bride of Christ. You have to deal with being sons of God. We just have to deal with it. We're all sons of God if we're in the kingdom And it makes sense that if we serve a God of peace, that his sons would be marked by peace. That makes sense. So I want to say three quick things about peacemaking. First of all, it's costly. It's going to cost us. I mean, it certainly cost Jesus a ton for him to come and make peace with us. So why would we think that would be any different for us? Peacemaking is going to require forgiveness. It's going to require letting go. It's going to require just being okay being wronged often. But secondly, peacemaking doesn't mean that we're a doormat. All right? Peacemaking requires some very hard decisions, decisions, some very strong courage. It requires sometimes saying some very difficult things, but motivated by love. And then thirdly, we need to be okay knowing that we won't always attain peace. You know, we don't control everything. Paul says, so far as it depends on you, Make sure you have peace with everybody. We don't control everything, but for whatever it is that we control, we work for peace and leave the results to God. Blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And then finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, so you can see Matthew's doing the same thing again. We're ending where we began. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how he started and that's how he's ending. He wants us to see these these bookends here. And of all the misunderstandings that come out of the Beatitudes, I think most of them come from from this one right here. 
So notice that it says persecution for righteousness sake. All right, for righteousness sake. We're not talking about persecution for being a condescending jerk, all right? We, that we can bring on loads of opposition because of the way we do things, but there's no blessing for that. So years ago, I, I was in Little Rock killing some time and I had the opportunity to go to the Bill Clinton Presidential Library. And it was, it was pretty impressive, but I remember there was this room. Uh, the whole room had to do with one particular scandal during his administration. And the name of that room was A President Under Persecution. I remember thinking, I'm pretty sure the word's prosecution. <laughs> yeah, he, he brought that on himself. Okay, so we need to understand there are different types of persecution and there's a type of persecution for which brings a blessing and one that will never bring a blessing. There are people out there who bomb abortion clinics. There are people out there who, who go to college campuses and yell and scream at people and they point to this verse and they say, because of the persecution they see against them, we're blessed. We know we're blessed. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And in verse 11, as I said in the beginning, he elaborates on that. And he says that the blessing for those persecuted is a blessing on my account. So Jesus' words, we're blessed when persecuted on his account. So what does that look like? What is that type of persecution? It means we're persecuted for being like Jesus. I mean, that's the whole point of our life, our Christian life, is that we are conformed into his image. So as we're in the kingdom and growing in the kingdom, we're gonna look and sound a lot more like Jesus, And so for some people, they're gonna be drawn to that. Paul says that's gonna be the fragrance of life, but for others, it's gonna be the stench of death. They'll be repelled by it and they will say things and do things to push against that because they don't like the image of Jesus around them. And when that happens, that's when Jesus says, blessed are you, congratulations, way to go. And I have to imagine that someone you know, in China or the Middle East would, would listen to this sermon and say, really? I mean, you live in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> Let's, you know, what kind of persecution are you really experiencing, Jim? And, and to anybody who might think that, I would say, by God's grace, yes, it's nothing like what they're experiencing. By God's grace, we have been spared the type of persecution that has sent countless of brothers and sisters to jail and even worse. And I praise God for as long as that's the case in the United States of America. But it doesn't mean that we're not persecuted. I, I can't get around the inevitability of certain verses like where Paul says in Second Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or to the Philippian church that we looked at this, this fall. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then Jesus, in John 15, he says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So I think Paul, Peter, Matthew, and certainly Jesus I think they would say that it doesn't matter how tolerant of a society you live in. If you are in this kingdom, you will experience a measure of persecution. And so we need to ask ourselves kind of, kind of two, two different things, one on each hand. One hand, are we, are we being persecuted for the right things? 
are we, are we being persecuted simply for looking and sounding like Jesus or are we being persecuted because of other things we're bringing on ourselves? Or, on the other hand, are we being persecuted? Are we being persecuted? Because if there's no persecution in our life, I think there's reason to examine our faith. How Christ-like are we, really? As I was reading the commentaries this week, I, I, I saw a, a story I'd never heard before about the church father, Tertullian. Tertullian had a, had a guy in his church that, um, that he was a businessman and he was coming to Tertullian talking to him about this big conflict between his business interests and his faith. And he, he explained it and he said, I don't know what to do, Tertullian. I mean, I've got to live. And Tertullian looked at him and said, do you? For Tertullian, the lines were clear. We follow Jesus. That will mean difficulties, that will mean persecution, but Jesus is saying, then we're blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. All right, so those are the eight ways that we're blessed in the kingdom of God as we relate to God, as we relate to man. And then lastly, and this is super brief, what are the promises that we get from that blessing? So we see in the Beatitudes, there are eight Beatitudes to say the kingdom is yours. So you're in. And then in between, sandwiched in between are six blessed. Well, let me say this. One promise of six blessings. So if you're in the kingdom, you either get all of them or you get none of them. One promise, six things. Those six things are comfort, earth ownership, satisfied righteousness, abounding mercy, a vision of God, and the title sons of God. When we are in the kingdom and we are blessed, those are the things that we receive. And if you're an English major out there, you might be wondering, well, Jim, when, when exactly do we receive these blessings? Because I see some of them are in the present tense and some of them are in the future tense. So which is it? Is it, is it now? Is it later? And the answer is yes. Both. This is what theologians have called for a long time, the already not yet. We receive all of the promises of the kingdom the moment we believe in part. And we receive them fully when Jesus comes back to restore his kingdom. And so I wanna, I wanna kind of finish by asking this question. Why is it that Jesus cares that his people live according to kingdom values before he comes back? Because, because if we can't answer that question, we, we are really not understanding the way that Jesus is bringing his kingdom. Because there is certainly a day when Jesus is coming back and he's restoring everything. Every corner of this universe will obey the king of the kingdom. But we can fall into this trap of thinking that's when the kingdom starts. That's not what Jesus is saying. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is not one that comes immediately at the end of time. The kingdom is one that comes progressively with a very dramatic end. That's what Jesus is saying. And so now we get to live in the kingdom. We get to live in the kingdom operating in concert with the economy of the kingdom. And we become ambassadors to a world that there is a different kingdom, that there is a true king. We become ambassadors who proclaim loudly, we're not of this kingdom, we're of this kingdom. And sometimes the loud proclamations from ambassadors are through quiet acts of mercy and behind the scenes peacemaking. 
But everything about what we do and who we are is different because we're a part of that kingdom. And to the degree that we recognize that and we live out the economy of that kingdom, to that degree, we will experience the blessings of the kingdom of God. Not fully again, but increasingly until that day when he comes back. The Christian life is not an easy one. It's just not. It never will be. It was never intended to be. But it is meant to be a blessed one, to be a joyful one. When we can understand fully that we don't live in this kingdom, we live in the kingdom of God. And to the degree that we understand that and live that out, to that degree, we will experience the blessings of the kingdom and all but audibly hear our Lord saying to us, well done. Blessed are you. Way to go. Congratulations. The kingdom is yours. Let's pray. God, we come to you, all of us, absolutely unworthy of your kingdom. All of us, hopefully, understanding more deeply every day the mercy that we receive to be invited into your kingdom. And I pray that you would do a work in our hearts that only you can do to help us to understand the blessing of the kingdom, how we can live, how we should live. And I pray that you would give us a vision for being those ambassadors, that we would, we would be ambassadors in this lost world, that you would give us all the knowledge and joy and patience and peace and love and mercy and grace that we need to fulfill the mission that you've given us. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.